Welcome to Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers-Jones. Hello, I'm Giles Vickers-Jones and welcome to Bull by the Horns sponsored by Shy Aviation. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a hugely successful individual who has taken massive risks to reap incredible rewards. I'll be asking them how success has affected their careers and what inspires them to keep on taking risks. If you like what you hear, then please make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It's 100% free, and of course, you never miss an episode. This week, I sat down with co-founder and CEO of Keeping to Craig Coffin, one of the most positive people you'll ever meet, an absolute inspiration. Right, so let's get into it. Here's my chat with Craig Coughlin. I began by asking him, has he worked for himself his whole life? No, I haven't. I actually I started my career in financial services, so I did spend some time with uh, with some of the big banks. I was with J.P. Morgan, Merrill Lynch, UBS, and um, yeah, I mean that was that was the first the first that was the first of my careers. Let's say. So was that because your father was an industrialist, wasn't he? Correct. He was an industrialist. So you kind of have that big corporate mentality. Perhaps you instilled upon you going to university and stuff like that. In college. I, mean, I think, in fact, he had a. It was it was more of an entrepreneurial mentality. Okay. In fact, but I think that the it wasn't so obvious. I could have gone to work for my father, mm-hmm. but of course uh, that would have been uh, actually sometimes I think that would have been a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I sh- maybe I should have done that. I mean, it's weird really you yeah. say that because I always think about friends who got wealthy fathers, yeah. and I'm like, God. That's great. Yeah. Anyway, look, he, look, he was very successful. He worked very hard. He built a great business, you know, in, in, in Canada, the U.S., Mexico, Europe, all over the place. Yeah. International industrial company, and I could have gone to work for him. It was a public company, so there's there's some issues around that, you know. And, and I think we we kind of decided together I should I should prove myself, mm-hmm. and then there was the idea that we might end up working together, mm-hmm. um, which which didn't happen directly uh, because once you start your own career. And things get started. Of course, you're you're on a track. So, you know, I started in New York, and uh, I worked uh, I worked on a bond trading desk, and uh, ended up in London. I spent time in corporate finance, uh, which was probably the time when I when I learned the most in banking because it's pretty intensive, especially when you're at a junior level. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up in the in the global equity markets and sales and trading, which was which was super exciting. That's where actually, as a young person, I was able to you know earn a lot of money, which was also tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, but that took me up till till 2004, and then uh, I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and uh, and one day I, I got up the courage to say I'm out of here. So it's a hard one because I know what JP. You're vice president at JP Morgan, right? So yes, I imagine a starting salary what half a mil. You know, I think uh, I think my, you know, I don't know I, to be honest in terms of the split between salary and, and bonus. I'm not sure. I mean, my total comp was was probably just shy of a million back so then. So that's a million. You were 23 to 27, that kind of earning. Yeah, that kind of. I mean, that's that astonishing. Yeah. So that that in itself is astonishing, right? Because that's an incredible feat. When I look back, it's money. it's incredible. They they, 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 they paid exist? way too much. To be honest. Does that still exist today? Can people still earn that type of money at that age, doing that kind of role? Well, okay. So or it's just because you're so brilliant. No, 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 no. It's definitely not because of that. That's for sure. I mean, look, the times have changed, as we know, and and the city is not uh, functioning in the same way it was. Okay, mm. compensation as a young person, you can still earn a lot. For the banks, mm. no doubt about it. Mm. But what's happened is there's, there's been a definite brain drain towards private equity, towards hedge funds, towards alternatives. So a lot of the top talent has moved there, and they're still mm. earning a tremendous amount of money. Sure. But to think you can go and work for a big, bulge bracket firm mm. at a young age in your young twenties mm. and earn that kind of money yep. in your twenties, 
Okay, there will be, will be exceptions, but they're, they're few and far between. Okay. So yeah. you're in his money, you've got your lifestyle. Um, to step away to become an entrepreneur, this is one of the things I, one of the reasons I, lo- I love doing this podcast is because we get to find out what part of someone's life did they work for themselves. And I, everyone works for themselves, of course you do. You get up in the morning, you make a decision, right? But I'm on about take away that salary, take away that safety net, take away that security. This is your moment. Why did you do it? And what did you do? <laughs> yeah. Because that I mean, uh, I mean, that's a big risk. For sure. You're stepping away. I mean, at that point, I imagine, you know, you're a young man. You're drinking magnums of champagne. You're partying <laughs> in, the, in the West End of London. You're out in Miami. You know, you've been... I mean, you've got York. a good life. When you're yeah. working for these big firms and you're earning a lot of money and you're young, you've got a great life. There's, yeah. there's no doubt about it. And, uh, and I think that's why so many people don't walk away. Right. Um, and it's... Uh, well, it was a big decision. I wanted to do it always. I knew I would do it. It was a matter of, of, of when. And I think, I think, you know, if I'm really honest about that period of my life, so much of it looked so good from the outside, okay? I was earning a lot of money. I yeah. was young. I was living a great, a great life. I was traveling. It was mm. fantastic. But I didn't love what I was doing. And, and you know, that's, that's quite something given how much they were paying me. But I didn't. So, so it wasn't really about the money then? Right, because you got this money, but you weren't loving it. Well, I mean, certainly the money could keep. Was you the money there. the only reason you were staying around? Well, look, I mean, it didn't keep me there long enough. But I mean, the money certainly is—it's a tough thing to walk away from yeah. because you got to pay bills. Yeah, and when your bills are big, you got to pay big bills. Um, so it's uh, it's tough. But I didn't like it. I didn't like when I woke up in the morning and I I crack of dawn, you'd be in the city at your desk early, working long hours, and I didn't love the work. It didn't bring the satisfaction that I certainly have today. And even even during periods of entrepreneurship when I've been in really a tough financial position, yeah. at least I've loved the work and I've loved right, the okay. and, that, so and that's, that's the difference. Well, I, I think I had a chat with someone else recently, and he's, he's, his name's Mark Gilbert, and he um, always said the thing about being an entrepreneur, work for yourself, growing a business, whatever stage you're at, it's to keep paddling, he calls it. Yeah. My father-in-law, he always says, keep putting one foot in front of the other. When you work in our, in our, in our, in our, by the way, in our firm today, there's, there's a few of the partners. We, we say onwards and upwards. Okay. We just never stop. Never stop. And I think when you take a salary, you have the freedom to stop yeah. or the option. And I, and, and I think that's partly why you can succeed. More people could succeed at being an entrepreneur than they realize. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've certainly got to decide that you're never going to stop. I mean, you, you may have to pivot. You may have to change the plan you've made, but if you're going to stop, you won't make it. So can I go back to your banking? So one of the, one of the misconceptions about banking is you've got retail banking, which is high street, right? Yeah. And then you've got the guys behind the scenes. And I, I actually am a fan of banking and a fan of, of trading because it's a it's free enterprise, right? You can do what you want. It's a capitalist world. You definitely can't do what you want, but yes. So <laughs> what I'm going to say is a, a human being can choose to do what they want. 100%. You're not breaking the law. And actually... The money you're making, the company's still making more. But it's a, it's a real niche job. But what do you say to people, I mean, sorry, I don't mean to go down this path, who have an issue with banking, have an issue with these young men and women earning all this money when the world's going to shit? Oh. Do you have a, an opinion about that? I mean, of course. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion. And we have to be sensitive to the fact that people are suffering everywhere. Yeah. Okay. It's not just here where we're fortunate. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Get them. And when a young person can go and work for another company and pull down that kind of income, one has to ask if there's a balanced society going on. Of course, there isn't. Yeah. No. 
but I am a capitalist, mm -hmm. I am an entrepreneur, mm. and I do believe that if somebody is willing to put in the effort, take advantage of opportunities, create opportunities, they deserve success. Yep. Okay, so let's step away from that, that political, tricky, yeah, that's a slippy tightrope. That's, that's a slippery one. I mean, look, look I, I will say this. I mean, we have, when I say we, I'm talking about you know my company, my partners, my group, but the uh, we have definitely shifted our focus from what used to be one where we just cared about making a lot of money to right. today making a difference. I mean, this is okay. this is this is 100% the case, and in fact. You know, it's one of the things we've become obsessed with Africa. And it's not that we think we are going to change Africa because that's not going to happen. Africa no. needs to change itself. But we can certainly be a positive influence and we can certainly do things that pass the smell test. Okay, so look, we just jumped onto Africa. Yeah, sorry, so we can go, we go no, back if you want. it's good. <laughs> look, we just meander here. So for those that don't know Craig's company, your company's, well, QP, it's, it's, yeah. it's come through various guises. What does QP stand for? Well, the, the original name was Quality Premier. Yeah. And uh, we, we learned because so many customers couldn't, couldn't get the company name right. They just started calling us QP, and we, we eventually became QP. So you know, all good companies, ICM, IBM, they all have <laughs> acronyms. So why not, right? Yeah. So QP. So this is what I find amazing about you, Craig. Is you've been involved. I mean, we, we, everything from iron ore, oil. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at one point we were talking about your private jet that you owned as well. Um, <laughs> and now well, you've moved into food goods. I mean, you're selling palm oil and flour. And basic cooking oil. It's a big yeah. You're, you're basically, you're, you're, you're selling basic goods across the, the whole of sub-Sahara. I mean, this for me is incredible. So you have a company which employs hundreds of people. You've set it up yourself. You weren't involved in industry. Yeah. You've, you've sold your companies a couple of times now. You've cashed out twice. Is that correct? In the nicest possible way. You've made yeah. some money. We've had one very very nice cash out, and yeah. then some smaller stuff. And you've gone, right, it's not quite enough. I'm going to go back into this. And you've, you've gone into foodstuffs, which for me is remarkable. So True. So but, I, but I do want to say, it's not that we said uh, that's not quite enough. Because that implies we didn't quite earn enough money. Okay. Which is not the case. It's, no. it's that um, we aren't finished with, with work. You know, for, for me, what, what I think I, I've realized, when we had our last exit, which was related to the iron ore business, um, I think for a moment, some of us thought we might retire. Okay, that's hilarious. Looking back in hindsight, I mean, well, it's going to be impossible for me to ever retire. Okay, this is, well, this is something. Want. Well, it's something that I'm now clear on, yeah. and I think as part of this journey that we're all on is getting to know yourself mm -hmm. and actually being able to, as we mature, be honest about who we are. I'm never going to retire. That is crystal clear to me. So, so it doesn't say, matter how much money I so make. So you go I to your retire. deathbed going, yeah, let's have a, onwards and upwards here. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so because if you, if you know, I'm sorry to say it, but if you find something you love, mm. it's not work. So even at the most stress, okay, at the most stressful times when we're in a cash flow crunch, when everything seems to be going wrong, mm. it's tough. Yeah. Let's not pretend. Yeah. But you get through those periods, and if but if you love what you do, it doesn't feel like work. And that's the difference between when I was working for the banks, sitting in the city, the alarm goes off, you're pressing snooze, you're thinking, oh God, here goes again, you know, and, and you're dying for that weekend, and the and, and today, which is that you know. Of course, there are tough days, but I love it. I love what I do. I heard something earlier, and it was talking about you evolve every nine years as a human being, right? <laughs> so, so I guess you're looking at that. It takes probably what well, does take nine years to get a company to where you want to be. I mean, you've been at QP now five years. I think it's been six. Six. Years. Sorry, twenty fifteen. <laughs> I saw yeah. you talking yeah. about twenty fifteen. You set up six years. So, will you get to where you want to be in three years? Do you think? Oh boy. 
I mean, uh, where, where, where? So tell us about QP and where is it going to go? Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> I love QP. So we, um, you know, we started off the, the company. I think this is the same with a lot of entrepreneurs. Companies evolve, of course. Mm. When we started the business, we didn't have the plan we have today. Let, let's be clear. Mm. Um, but what had happened is we, we'd exited uh, a business that involved the export of raw materials from Africa, mm -hmm. predominantly to China, which was, which was the iron ore business. Yep. And that had grown very quickly. It was very successful. And, uh, and it, was, it was a lot of fun and it was a great business. But I think we, and I say we, you know, my business partner and I um, felt that it wasn't doing anything good for Africa taking raw materials out of Africa and then sending them to China where they were processed. And you're not benefiting the country for whom you are taking the resources from, okay? So we had this idea about doing something that would be a positive and we loved Africa, okay? When I say Africa, I wanna be very specific. Yeah. What's interesting for us is sub-Sahara, okay? But only down to a point. So to me, South Africa is, is more like Europe. Okay. okay, Namibia is more like Europe. We're interested You're in the wild west of Africa. We're in that chunk in the middle. Yeah. And of course, recently there's been a big focus on West Africa for us. Okay. You know, we're in Sierra Leone, we're expanding into Guinea, Liberia. Nigeria. We're in, we're in Ghana. Yeah, we're expanding into Nigeria. Uh, looks like uh, we're, we're sending uh, first cargoes to Cameroon. We'll probably open up there as well. So we're, wow. we're very focused on that part because there's huge population growth. Yeah. There's a massive food import bill that's growing. And these two things combined, we're in the food business. Yeah. yeah? So, so it, so it kind of makes sense. Um, anyway, look, when we started the business, it was about, let's do something good. What happened was that Russia and Ukraine relations began to deteriorate. And of course, we'd exited a business. We were free. Yeah. We had something to do. Yeah. And what we noticed was that a market like Ukraine, that was a major, it is a major agricultural player. It was the breadbasket for Russia. Ukraine was a well, they would supply Russia, Russia with their food. Massive amount. Well, who does, who does Russia now then? Well, Russia's developed significantly okay, internally, yeah. okay? And of course, it's still an import. It still imports food yeah. products, but it's, it's had massive development internally uh, to give them credit. But really, when that, when that relationship began to deteriorate, Russia said no more. So Ukraine, I mean, this is quite a crude explanation, but it's, yeah. it's true. Ukraine was looking for export customers in, an, in, a, in a way they'd never looked for them before. Okay. And it, that was the time that we went to Ukraine and, and said, hang on a second, what can we do? And we had we so had you some found contacts. the opportunity. Well, we saw we saw the opportunity. We knew Africa had a food import problem. Okay, a massive uh, food import bill every year that's growing, and of course, uh, low quality food products. And having traveled extensively in Africa, we had seen the quality of food was an issue. Yeah. Not only that, but you know, transparency on things like labeling and packaging. You know, consumers not having a choice, not knowing what they're eating. I mean, it's, it's appalling. Actually. Oh Christ! Yeah. So 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 knowing that Ukraine had these incredibly strict standards for food, yeah. which it does, which mm -hmm. are amazing, because the Rus Russia would never allow its people to have food uh, that, that didn't meet certain safety sure. standards. That, that just was not part of the policy. So Ukraine was structured in a way where it was sending all this great food to Russia, and then Russia wasn't taking any more, and it had to pivot and export. Again, it's quite crude. Ukraine, believe me, especially on agriculture, has been exporting massive amounts of, of wheat, of corn to other, to other markets. But I'm talking quite crudely, and I'm talking about finished food products. Yep. So we said, okay, let's go to Ukraine. Let's have a look around. And in reality, we went, we bought, uh, we bought 10 containers of, uh, of wheat flour. And let's just say you know, a container of wheat flour has uh, maybe 25 metric tons, so 25,000 mm -hmm. kilograms. Mm -hmm. 
So we bought uh, we bought 250 tons of wheat flour and we sent it to uh, in, in 25 kg bags and we sent it to actually it was sorry it was 50 kg bags at the time. We sent it to one of our one of our old team members uh, from the the export business in Africa. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, we actually sent another ten. So we sent ten to the the West Coast. We sent ten to Freetown. We sent ten to Mogadishu. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened? Well, they sold the wheat flour, sent us the money, and, and if, if I'm honest, that's how the business was born. God, I'd say, do you, do you form a company at this point, or yeah, were, we, you, were you just trying to be like you're a broker, yeah, we, right? Well, no, no, we, we weren't a broker because because well, no, you, you own the goods. Right? Yeah, it depends how you define broker. I mean, for me, no, we, we were a principal. We we bought the wheat flour. Yeah, cool. We so, hadn't sold it. We then went and sold it. Now, let's be clear, okay? It was our own capital yeah. at risk. Yeah, yeah, it was a small amount. And we said, this is a risk worth taking. Okay. What happened was we sent it to trusted people that we'd worked with in the past. Gotcha. We knew that they would you know, take care of it responsibly. We had regular communication. They sold the flower, sent us the money. And yes, then we, we put a company together. Yeah. We formed a company and we started to started send more. So did that work? It did work. It worked. It worked. I mean, look, it, it worked. Yes. Um, there were some major things we learned along the way. I mean, we sent the wrong quality of wheat flour. We sent the wrong strength of bag. The sewing was too weak on the top of the bag. There were leaks. Uh, you know, we learned so many things about wheat flour that I never would have even thought. So this is, this is, I mean, so this is a big risk you took here because you've suddenly, you've got your money, you've gone to Ukraine to a region you don't know, really. True. Yeah, okay, you knew Africa, but Africa's a vast place. Yeah. Sub-Sahara, a lot of corruption, and there's a lot of competition. So you've gone, and you've done this without knowing what to do. And a lot of people at this point might have given up. I mean, you say it worked. Did it work and make you as much money as you thought it would make? Well, look, it was a trial, okay? And I think that was the, that was the, the responsible part, is that it was, it was relatively, for us, in terms of financial risk at the time, it was a relatively small risk, okay? okay? Things got interesting later <laughs> because as we as we began to well first of all we decided to send different products so we thought well let, let's send some sunflower oil okay. for example that's a high quality also coming from ukraine from ukraine yeah let's send some sunflower and did oil. you have a control on the quality as well at this point yeah i mean well, well okay n no uh, we didn't have control on the quality because we were not the manufacturing business so what we were doing was we were meeting with with food food processors and manufacturers in ukraine mm. and we were saying to them look um would you produce this for us with our label on it Okay, because we, the one thing we absolutely were convinced of from day one was that we wanted to build our own brands. If we're going to build this business of bringing food into Africa, we need to have our own brands. Okay. First of all, we're paying for the goods. Okay, so we want our label on it. Oh, right, Second of okay. all, we want to build brands in Africa because this will have value in the future as opposed to being a distributor or a wholesaler for other manufacturers, right? So this, this is not like labeling a product essentially, Correct. right? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, through time, I'm assuming you've modified the product to make it to the specifications that you need. Well, absolutely. And what happens, of course, is you begin to make investments. So you begin okay. to say, hang on, we could invest in this manufacturer. Yeah. We could contribute here. We yeah. could then start to be part of controlling the quality. Make sure we have the consistency. Make yeah. sure we have the supply when we need it. The volume. All these kind of things. Yeah. But this was this came later. This was this was very much experimenting phase. Okay. You know, what products can we send? Will they be sold? Yeah. And remember, at this point, we're relying on people, albeit people we trust. Yeah. We're relying on them to give us feedback, send the money back, all these things. So, we diversified the risk by doing multiple destinations multiple products, staggering the shipments, and kind of growing that way. And then, you know, then came the next stage, which was, hang on a second, the real value add is not sitting outside of Africa, the real value add is operating in Africa. And, and of course, we'd had a background there. Um, so we said, we said, look, 
what's going to be the easiest way to start this uh, with with the lowest uh, you know the, the lowest amount of, uh, of investment and that was that was starting distribution and uh, and we started that uh, we started ourselves uh, in the Middle East and then in East Africa we started with a joint venture partner mm-hmm. and then ultimately we got up the courage to do it on our own in West Africa and that, um, and that's kind of the journey that distribution took and were you so you were self-funding, right? You didn't have yeah. any investors at this point. No, no, no. We had no investment. We completely self-funded, and uh, you know, and that's that's. And, and I think at that stage you have to. I mean, you know, new business, new industry we've never been in, uh, new markets, okay, uh, new products, and quite frankly, uh, this is you, you're not going to raise money for this. So this, you know, is, this is a time ask, when an entrepreneur has to put their their money where their mouth is. So you backed yourself. I mean, that is a big thing. I was going to ask you, you know, what it are is the a big I was going to ask you biggest ever risk and biggest best ever decision probably hand in hand right there no I mean <laughs> I mean yeah. you've I mean look those who don't know you've lived in Monaco as well so yeah. you've sold a business you've, you've been out there you've come back to the UK you, you know you're not avoiding any taxes or anything you've just done the sensible thing through your life for sure the business. no I was out look I was out I was out for six years um, I love the UK I mean you're the I archetypal entrepreneur right you've sold a company made your money paid the taxes where it's due yeah. gone overseas come back and started something again yes um, but and this a, time by the way as I've promised my wife we're not leaving <laughs> so this time we're now we love it here we well it's it. good because I do like my cycle rides with you to be fair <laughs> yeah. for those who don't know Craig and I have cycle, bike, bike around um, Hyde Park quite a lot <laughs> um, very fast and we're obviously very fit and everyone stares at us with awe um, not at all um so, I mean, that's those are tough questions to answer. Best ever decision. Yeah, well, I, do you know? Do you know? Let's let's start with because one I could I could say this. Go. I could say leaving J P Morgan was the best ever decision I've I've made, and that is and, amazing. And, and, it, and it was the biggest risk I've ever made. Okay, think about it. Right. Of course. But you could also say that what I just described to you is as well. I mean, I can tell you. Yeah, there's been a lot of those. There's been a lot of those. Does it? You know, as an entrepreneur, as someone who's grown businesses and you've done it in various guises, does it get easier? I mean, one of the things, because one of the things I understand is no, you start to get structure, right? No, well, you start to have financial people you rely on, yeah. accountants. You start to have a good management team around you who you can rely on. And moreover, you can learn from, let's yeah. be clear. So, and you start to understand how to create a company. You start to understand where you put trust, what people at least yourself. Well, I think, I think so really you can scale up a bit easier, perhaps, than most people having done it in multiple guises. Yeah, maybe. Right? But, but I, I guess the thing is, is that you also start to learn what you're actually good at and okay. what you're not good at. And I think that that's super important for an entrepreneur. And of course, what we've got to remember is there's different stages of entrepreneurship, right? Starting a company is easy. Anyone can start a company. That, that's the easy decision to make. Yeah. It's easy to do. A couple of thousand, you got a company, you're up and running. Yeah. But how are you going to make that company profitable? Yeah. How are you going to make impact okay. change? How are you going to do something? And of course, so then there's then there's the, these the early stage startup. Now, obviously, I'm more specific speaking about my industries, which have been related to commodity and yeah, yeah. Now, now more specifically to food. But these can be small businesses and they can be successful. Yeah. Of course, I'm not interested in that. I want to I want to scale. I want to scale big time. Um, so, but but we have to we have to recognize that being successful as an entrepreneur in the startup phase requires different skills than being successful as an entrepreneur in the scale up phase, right? Okay. I mean, these are different skills. What is a tangible skill then? What you must be able to isolate that. Well, so for example, you just talked about you know having your your finance, you know your good yeah. finance guys, yeah. you know having these things in yeah. place. That that doesn't come in the early stages of entrepreneurship. Right. In the early stages of entrepreneurship, you do everything on your own. Yeah. Right. Because you're an entrepreneur. I mean, I mean both. The, the the QP uh, was was we started in my living room and uh, and the iron ore business we started in my living room, 
And both of them okay. were in my living room. Okay, so there was no finance team, there was no HR team, there was no legal team doing the contracts. No seed capital. No, you just put it in yourself. And, and, and I can rem- I can remember you know too many late nights drafting up legal contracts, employment contracts. Mm. You know, doing these these things, um, building financial models. I mean, that's when I that, that thank God I spent time in the city. I mean, I remember modeling these businesses on Excel, and thinking, God, I'm doing everything myself here. But you know, and it's tough. No income. You can't hire people. It to is do it. tough, but it's, but it's fantastic. Well. Well, I mean, it's, it's, so I yeah, it's fantastic. I so I read a lot, and you read a lot, and you you hear a lot of successes, and you see these unicorn companies, or even not even unicorns, just companies doing hundreds of millions. And this is how it goes. You have an idea, you raise seed capital, you work on it a bit, you've got this amazing idea, then you go for round two, round three, and at no point, or maybe I'm wrong, have you done the journey you've done from your living room? I think people do, but I I think there's a um, misconception about what a business is and how you start it, and it is doing every job. Yeah, yourself. You don't raise money. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people think you have to raise money. You don't, you just gotta start something. You raise right. money later when you when you're doing something. Correct. Else. For me, I think. So that, I, that doesn't imply you need to have a little bit of seed capital. Yeah. But let's be clear. For some, on, on different scale, that could be ten thousand. It yeah, could be ten I, million. But if you have a little bit of seed capital, you start on your own. I mean, if you, yeah, and, and, and I and I think some people read these stories about these unicorns and they got really good ideas, but actually, the I'd suggest that the principals, the owners, started from their bedrooms with an idea, right? And they just. And I think one, and I think the great thing, like the past you've trodden me to a small extent, is you learn every part of the job. But the okay. hardest thing is, right? When do you hire someone yeah. to take over part of the job that you're doing? For example, you mentioned you're doing the contract, so that's illegal. Do you outsource that? You're rather than taking something off the internet and adjusting it, you <laughs> are doing the payments. So you're yeah. going logging online, yeah, absolutely. and you're doing a silly payment for twelve dollars or whatever. You know, when, and at what point do you start to spend money which is in, could go in your pocket? When oh. does that happen? What's a, what's a trigger we go, right, That's right. time to move on? No, no, of course. I mean, this, this is a, a major decision. And, and, and you have to have, you've got to, well, you don't have to have the money to do it. You've got to be able to convince people to come and do it with you. Okay. It doesn't necessarily require paying them. You know, it requires them believing in your vision, agreeing to your mission, because these days, I think, I think where there has been a shift, if we, if we talk, if we go back to the city in the late 90s and early 2000s, a lot of young people wanted to just earn money. And, and today, I actually think it's different. I think, of course, people want to earn money. Mm. But they also want to make a difference. They want to do something yeah. amazing. They want to do something they love. And I think, you know, we're seeing that. And, and, and definitely, I believe that you can get great people into your business if they buy into your mission. And they make your mission theirs as well. Do you have, so do you have a mission statement? Do you have... What, you, what is it? I don't. I didn't bring it to read to you, but I can. I can roughly tell you. Yeah. We are. Um, we're going to affect change in Africa. Okay. Yeah. We're going to empower local communities yeah. by hiring from within those local communities and bettering their lives, and we're going to bring choices and transparency to people. Sounds pretty mega. I mean, look, I didn't read it, so forgive me. It's probably slightly different. No, but I get that. But that's what I believe. But I. I and, know, so, and by the way, and let me just let me just be very clear. So, yeah. how are we doing that? Yeah. So I'll give you a real example. Yep. In Sierra Leone, we've opened 16 warehouse distribution centers throughout the country where we distribute our food products. You've got 16. 16 now? We have 16. Wow. Okay. And, and, and by the way, let me be really, really clear on this. We have 154 employees in Sierra Leone and one of them mm-hmm. is a foreigner. 
Okay. Now that makes us very different for most operators there. Right. Okay. And so when I talk about empowering communities and going into the local communities, hiring talent, that's exactly what we've done. We've got 154 people in Sierra Leone. We do. Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. So how many people? Because, Craig, I've been talking to you about your journey the whole time I've had my business, right? or our business, sorry. So how many staff, how many people do you have working with you now? I guess we're probably around 250. So most of them are in SL. Because, so this, because in SL, we've done a different model than okay. what we've done everywhere else, okay. right? So we've opened, so it, so in SL being Sierra Leone, yes, sir. So it's, it's I know you love an acronym. You've got QP, well, SL, <laughs> yeah, it's, it makes SA. Life, makes life a lot easier. It's yeah. more efficient. So in Sierra Leone, which is what we're going to do in Guinea and Liberia, we've really, we're building our own footprint. That requires more people. But what it also requires is local talent from the community. Yeah. If you're going to open up a store in a city that you and I have never, ever heard of on the border of Guinea, Okay, you're not going to send in foreigners to run that store. It will be rejected within the community. There'll be yeah. all sorts of problems. What you've got to do is you've got to empower the young people in that community. You've got to teach them the skills that, by the way, a lot of them don't have. Okay, there's high rates of illiteracy in Sierra Leone. Yeah. There is a problem. But actually, what, we're, what we believe is that we can actually help. Yeah. And so I would say, I think the number is, I think it's 60%. No, it's higher than that. It, more than 60% of the people we've hired in Sierra Leone were unemployed before we hired them. So how were they making a living? What were they doing? How do they pay for their families and food? Unemployment in the country is extremely high. So a country like Sierra Leone, is there a, a welfare state of any sorts? No. So, so if, if I haven't got a job, how do I eat? It's problematic. I mean, you could be, you, you know, you might be in a village where there might be some farming nearby. There might be, your village might be participating in, in uh, production of, of, so of cocoa. It might be, there might be some rice uh, growing locally. So you, you'll, be, you'll be involved in, you'll be doing something. You might, but you're, you but know, keep in mind. But it's a living, right? Yeah, I mean, come on, you could be earning 20, 50, $100 a month. I mean, it's, it's pretty tough. So how do you, um, so you hire these people, what? I mean, regardless of who you're hiring, right? It is still a job that they need to perform, right? Absolutely. There is still an accountability, whatever country, developing, developed, how do you hire people? What do you, because this is definitely one of the hardest things I've found, and actually, I am not brilliant at it. I've, luckily we have people to help us now, but how do you go and get some? What, what traits do you look for? What, what can people do who might want a job, improve upon when they're interviewed? Yeah, I mean, of course, look, it's, um, let's, let's, I'm not gonna avoid the question, I'm just gonna answer it in a specific way. Um, we're moving on to, we're moving to scalability here mm -hmm. right because when you're hiring as a very small business uh individual talent you might be looking for something different than what we're looking for now and so for example what i'm looking for now is you know world-class management teams because then i will empower those teams to make those hiring decisions okay. so for example we have somebody in sierra leone mm -hmm. who is a partner in the business Yep. Who is head of the country? Yep. Okay. And quite Sorry, frankly, head of the country. Yeah, he's you know he's head of the country in our business. Yeah. So he's he's head of the country. He's okay. to be head of the region. He's a GM, would he be? Yeah, he's a GM. Right. Exactly. But he's also a partner in the business, okay. and he is somebody we've worked with for a long time. Yeah. There's a high level of trust and respect between us. He is responsible for hiring his team. Okay. Now, I have helped him to hire, for example, a position that I thought was very very important, a financial controller. Yep. Okay, that was one position that I wanted to make sure that I was involved in hiring mm -hmm. to make sure that all of us had the best person for the job. I'm helping him to hire a head of business development, but he is responsible for the 151 other people, okay, uh, in, in the country, and, and his management team are responsible for that. If, if I go and interfere uh, too much in that, then I won't scale the business successfully. Okay, this, this is the key. 
Okay, so I'm not dodging the question is what am I looking for in a person? What I'm actually looking for in a senior management team is someone who has the ability to go and do that, to build their team. So I like, so this is something we've talked about before is allowing people to flourish in the roles they do. Yeah. And allowing your brain to be freed up just to make those smaller but important decisions, maybe even big decisions, but they're a small amount of the cog, but then the F, you know, an FD, or a financial officer, yeah. controller, sorry, um, and the head of business development, they're big roles. Sure are. But if you start hiring the machinists, yeah, I'm, I'm making you, how can you go and work in Nigeria and Ghana and Guinea and the other countries? Well, what so, I'm doing is I'm undermining the GM if I do that, right? It doesn't make sense. And so then, then they're not, how can they be responsible to me and to the business if I am micromanaging them? By the way, I gotta say this because this, this is the truth. Yeah. This is something, okay? Because if my wife is listening to this, yeah. she will be laughing out loud. This Hi, is a Lena. skill. I'll send it to her often. This, this is something that I have had to learn, <coughs> yeah. had to improve on, yeah. because I have been a control freak, okay. okay? And that is not the way to scale a business. And something that I've put an, an incredible amount of time into is figuring out and getting better at building a team around me that can execute successfully to free me up to scale the business. And this is something I am, these days, obsessed with, even when it comes to things like time management. So what would the day look like to someone who's trying to stop being a control freak? <laughs> well, a lot different than my days used to look like. Yeah, <laughs> It's tough, and, and, and listen, I'm not gonna say I'm getting it 100% right, that is for <clears> sure. <throat> there is constant room for improvement, but it's, um, it's, it's getting up. I mean, I've got a pretty strict, uh, a pretty strict schedule yeah. these days. Uh, in terms of trying to increase my efficiency. I think, you know, I've, I've even been well, studying this, this, this recently. I don't want to take, because it's a really important thing what you're saying, it's, it's, so let me just bring up one thing okay, in a minute. Okay, okay, on, sorry, okay, yeah, fine. So, you, so, so obviously these days, my days are really scheduled. Yeah. I do not work, uh, this, is, this is a tough I love this, I, I love I want, this. I want to be, I want to be, I'm going to be 100% honest here. Please. I want to say to you, I do not work the same hours I used to, okay? Um, and that is to some extent true. I work, I work less hours than I used to. My time, because I work much more efficiently, okay? But I don't have the balance right yet. I mean, I am, I am one of these people that is today convinced that I can do everything I want to do in 40 hours a week, but I'm not achieving it yet. Yeah. But I'm gonna get there very soon. Okay. And I'm working on this, I'm obsessed with this. But I would also argue you do the right thing, well obviously you've done the right thing, it's not for me to tell you, but you, uh, you've employed these people, right? So if you've got that chap who's your GM, in, in SL, um, he is taking that job off you. So that's five hours a week you allocated to that, gone, right? For sure. So you're freeing up the time. So one of the things which going on to this you discussed before is you spoke to someone about where you could be more efficient with your time. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the best thing I think I've ever heard is when they said to you, they, they did like a, an analysis on your life, is that right, and what you do, and they worked backwards to say, you actually need a chef. <laughs> Is that correct? Because <laughs> this is a funny thing, right? So this is great. This is my, wife, my wife says we need a chef. No, but you told me, and this is, you did tell me this, yes, is, uh, that's true. that you worked out actually the times you spend cooking are, let's say, an hour prep. I love food, so I cook a lot. Yeah, so you, you can be doing, so you, by the time you added it up, you might be doing 15, 20 hours a week cooking. Okay, right? let's, let's be clear. Let's talk about breakfast for a second, right? Yes. So who I, doesn't love breakfast? Who doesn't love breakfast? Yeah. Yeah, and quite frankly, you know, I really, We've just had a very naughty yeah, uh, chocolate. Let's put, let's put that aside for a moment. So one of the things I was finding is that I, 
I get up quite early. Yeah. Okay. Usually, I mean, well, that's a different definition for everybody. I tend to be at my desk at seven. Yeah. Okay. Because I love the mornings. There's a couple of reasons for it. One, the brain is operating at it for me at its most effective level. Yeah. And secondly, um, because most of my business is east. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's there's a time, time change on. issue. Yeah. So when I wake up in the morning, things are already very very busy. Yeah. So what I was finding is that I'd be at my desk by seven. I'd be working away and all of a sudden I'd feel quite hungry yeah. <laughs> and I'd think to myself, I need to do something about this. And so sometime around eight, nine, whenever I had a free moment, I'd run in the kitchen, I'd get extremely excited and I'd start making something. And because I love to cook and I love food, this would end up being a 35, 40 minute endeavor. <laughs> That's an extravaganza. Well, I love to cook yeah. and I love good food yeah. and, and it's a passion. Yeah. So. This, and I, and I realized, and of course I did, you know this, but I took this course, okay, um, at, which was all about, actually it's a great name, it's called Zero to Dangerous. I'm not, I'm not plugging it for them, Zero by the way. Zero to Dangerous. Yeah, I'm not plugging it for them because I don't, okay. I don't actually know them, but I, I signed up for this course and... It's a great name, Zero yeah, to Dangerous. Well, it's, it's, um, it's a great course run by a great group of people, well-published author, Stephen Kotler. Mm -hmm. I think, I think um, a lot of people would know that name anyway. Um, but it's all about... Well, it's about a lot of things, but efficiency of time, using your time in the most effective way, and being able to accomplish much more in far less time is, is really why I took this course. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the things that this is what led you on to this about having a chef. I mean, funnily <laughs> enough, this course, it, it, it's supposed to be the course is designed for people that want to be or are peak performers or think they can be. I mean, it's really for people that want to be. It's quite a broad section of people who want go to perform. It. Okay, yeah. but everyone has the same ambition. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I want to perform. Yeah, I really do. And so the, the course is saying, you know, if you declutter your life, if you manage your time more efficiently, yeah. if you eliminate things that are not high value for your time, yeah. you will be a peak performer. Okay. So for example, that 35 minutes to prepare this great breakfast, at the time when my brain is operating at its best, when I've had a great night's sleep, mm. should I be using that to make breakfast? Or should I be working on a rice transaction? Okay, rice I mean, transaction. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. so this is where this comes into play. And obviously, taking this course, you know, came into looking at my my schedule, you know, in, in sort of fifteen minute increments and half hour increments. And, and, and yeah. yes, you're right. One of the things the course recommended, which is hilarious, is as an idea, is get a chef because. Now, not everyone can do that, of course. <laughs> no. But it's a great idea. But listen, let, let, let's let's put down some practical habits. Then before I go to bed, yeah, right. What I like to do is prepare my one and a half liter bottle of water yeah. with the lemon on the cutting board, the knife beside it, the yoga mat out, so that when you get out of bed in the morning, and by the way, a pair of, you know, I wear a pair of jeans and a black t-shirt every day. Okay, maybe, maybe I'm copying someone well, else. Well, that was but, Steve Jobs used you know, to do. Listen, sometimes you don't need to reinvent Look, the wheel. You're just it, on you, the spectrum. But here's good. the thing, and, what, and this is what the course taught, yeah. is that in, instead of your brain being used in the morning to decide what yeah. you're wearing, don't waste that cognitive power and ability and energy on that decision. I don't waste that. it on finding the lemon out of the fridge. That, don't waste it on wondering. Okay. No. Have your jeans and your black t-shirt out on the chair. Okay. Yeah. Have your bottle of water on the kitchen counter with your lemon and knife beside it and your yoga mat on the floor. Yeah. Get up. Put on your jeans and black t-shirt. Yeah. Cut the lemon. Squeeze it in the water. Do your 15 minutes of yoga. Be at your desk. You know what? It works. Okay. If you don't do that, what should take you, you know, 25 minutes takes you an hour. That's the bottom line. Okay. And your brain's tired. Do you know what? That does make sense, doesn't it? Because I have that all the time. I always say to my wife, I don't want to put up shelves, right? And it's not because 
Well, first, I don't really know how to put up a shelf, but the point <laughs> is... Can you imagine you and I together trying to put up right. a shelf? <laughs> We'd have to move into a tent. But I, um, I, I always think like, well, that's taken away from the time and my bandwidth to focus on our business. And there's someone who's better at putting up a shelf and would do it in a fraction of the time, yeah. allowing me to work. So I, I kind of get that in a small way, but I love the fact that someone as successful as you is still learning. It's all oh trying to improve. Do you, I mean, do you have any, do you have any role, sorry, role models? Do you have any business people out there, we might know household names or whatever, where you kind of think, I want a bit of that, and they inspire you? Because it is hard. I mean, for those who don't know, Craig's, um, I don't want to say incredibly wealthy, incredibly <laughs> successful, but you've made a lot of money. You put it back into your company. So you could look at you, Craig, and go, you, you are the 1% of the 1%. That's a fact, right? But you must have people. I mean, who I think I'm, I think I'm at the very bottom of that one percent. But 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 it's very nice of you to say that. So do you have people who, who motivate you? Of course, of course. Have you had, have you had a mentor? I've had many. Okay. I've had many mentors at many different stages throughout my life, and and I think I think it's okay to because what I what I can't sit here and do is is, is name one person and say they're my mentor. It wouldn't be right. I think what's fair is that there are so many people that I learn from and and, and look to for different things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those can be on an ongoing basis or at temporary stages throughout your life. Okay. And you know, there's certain people that, and this, I think this is quite normal actually, but yeah. it, it was the best thing you can do is learn, not everybody is perfect and not everybody has the mix right. And, yeah. and for you just to sort of copy someone else's life is not gonna work, you've gotta find your own path. Okay. But what you could do is you could take one or two great things that you see some people do and combine them with one or two great things from other people yeah. and, and maybe, you know, and then have some of your own things. Have you got anything you, you can remember taking of someone else that you do, a habit? Well, th- this, we just, we just talked about it. I mean, this, Which this, is, this is getting everything done the night before. Yeah, this is, this is from a Take course. away small decisions. Yeah, take away small decisions. That's a big one. I love and that. And for sure. And uh, look, there's many, I mean, my, you know, obviously my, uh, my wife is a, is a big, uh, big influence on me and uh, she's, she's obsessed with this. And actually she's helping me push on this to the next level. And it does help. It well, she's so, sort of watched you through thick and thin, right? For sure. And she's seen, she's seen the mistakes I've made. And yeah. I think, you know, I'm, because I was a control freak, I, probably, I should say, I think I probably still am, trying to get better, trying to be less of a control freak. But because I was, she saw that I was working ridiculous hours, doing everything. So she, she wanted to know the other day, it was very question. I mean, Giles, this is embarrassing. I'm going to admit it. Do you know that I not only book all of my own flights, okay, by the way, this is stopping now, just to be clear. Yeah, but I, I book it. my own flights, my own travel. But this is incredible. I mean, I'm actually, the, I'm the CEO of the company, no big deal, but I book flights for others. I don't book them for, I, no, I, this is embarrassing. When because you told this me. is a joke. And in fact, the course I took, they would punish me if they, I hope so they don't hear this. Sometimes you tell me about a trip and I'm like, you, and I don't want to comment. Yeah. And it's because, because I know, and you know, I found a really good deal. I'm like, I mean, what are you doing? Why, why is that? It's, it's because, you know, I'm obsessed with the detail. But also, you know, can I, I say, want a particular seat. I want, okay. when that, when that, when but, that information is written in my calendar, yeah. I write it in a particular order. I write, I write the time, it starts with the time in military time, then the code for the first airport, the code for the second airport with the terminal, and then I want the confirmation number, and I want the seat number so I know what I booked. I want th- that in my calendar that way. I know yeah. which, you know, so these things, but this is again, this is ridiculous. So by the way, I agreed with my wife the other day, because this is one of the things I didn't improve in the course, which I should have, mm-hmm. is I am no longer booking my travel or okay. travel for anyone else. Okay. What a waste of time. It I'd is. be up at 11 o'clock at night on the computer, Trying. booking a trip yeah, you know, via, via Ethiopia yeah. to here and there and hotels. And I'd also say one of those 250 people who work with you, they wouldn't expect you to do that. They would rather you be thinking how you can improve their futures by growing the business. Well, you know, I hope so. And one, one of the, one of the, 
a partner in the business and a, a senior guy in the business, he, he rung me the other day and because I've always booked his travel. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah. and I want to get away with the kids for Christmas. <laughs> no, no, he, he, said to me, he, said, he said, you know, I think I need to go to the Dubai office. And I, I, I kind of laughed. I said, look, I, w- I won't say his name, but I, I just said, listen, do you really think that I should be booking this? And, and you know, we, we had a big laugh together and, and, and we've agreed that's never going to happen again. It's just an absurd, because honestly, think about it, Giles. The opportunity to open, we haven't even got onto the factories, but you know, we've opened our first factory. So we've gone from distribution to value add, a very important progression yeah. in the business. We're going to open a lot more factories. This is the future for us. How the heck can the CEO <laughs> be scaling and opening up factories if they are booking? Okay, money? so listen, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about what you're going to do with QP. I'd like to know perhaps your biggest regret, if you've got any, or one that got away. And I'm definitely going to ask you to share with the listeners your story about iron ore. Okay. Which, by the way, is amazing. So, um, let's take a break. You've been listening to Bull by the Horns. Our guest today is Mr. Craig Coughlin from QP, which is a mega company. If you don't know it already, go and find out. We'll, we'll share the website at some point, Craig. Actually, let's share it now. What is it? It's, it's qpagro.com. There you go. Um, I'm Charles Biggs Jones. We're sponsored by Shy Aviation. We'll be back in a minute. Shy Aviation and Lifestyle is the global leader in private aviation. Offering an unparalleled round-the-clock service, Shy Aviation focuses on every detail of your flight and are dedicated in making private jet travel as effortless as possible. With no hidden fees or membership costs, our pricing is straightforward and transparent. You only pay for what you use and when you use it. With global airport access, your travel destinations are endless. Plus, with our front door-to-jet door service, you'll experience true contactless travel, meaning you'll be at your safest with us. We'll even include a complimentary luxury lifestyle concierge for all clients. We're here to help you unlock the world safely, discreetly and privately, and to always give you the ultimate luxury experience. Request a quote and start your journey with us today at shyaviation.com. QP is a multinational, integrated food sourcing, packaging, and distribution business with a focus on West Africa. They have recently opened an edible oils packaging plant in Ghana and 16 distribution centers throughout Sierra Leone, with over 220 employees thus far and growing every quarter. Find out more at qpagro.com. That's QPAGRO. This is going to be a billion dollar company very soon. Enjoy. Welcome to Bull by the Horns with Giles Vickers-Jones. Welcome back to Bull by the Horns, sponsored by Shiviation. I'm Giles Vickers-Jones. We have the mega Craig Coughlin with us, (laughs) so let's crack on where we were. So, QP, this is your... Baby right now. For sure. Um, what's a, what's the future like? Where do you want to get to? Because you've got these successes, you've made this money, you've done that. I'm imagining you're going big league now. What's the plans for it? Yeah, look, I mean, we, we have big plans, of course. And um, we want to continue building our distribution. Okay, we've got a big focus on West Africa. We're mm-hmm. opening our own distribution. So we're in Sierra Leone, we're expanding to Guinea and Liberia. We're in Ghana. 
we're expanding to the borders, so we're, we're growing within Ghana. We're going to open up uh, in, in Senegal, most likely, and that will spread into, we'll, we'll use Senegal as a platform to serve Mali, the Gambia, other countries. Um, and, I, and I hope after that we'll be, we'll be opening in, in Cameroon and Nigeria. So that, th those countries together will serve a massive West Africa market. What's okay. the population of all those countries? Do you know? You all know. Yeah, that. of course. I mean, it, you know, it, everyone has a different opinion on that because there are different numbers. But let's just say that if we're serving that, the market I've just described, including the border countries, which yeah. we would serve, we'd be looking at 500 million plus people. Five. So that's just under double the US. Correct. And, and so again, when, when we look at uh, these countries, the, the, the countries with uh, ports, they will be serving the inland countries. So I'm including those populations because it's very, very important. That's what you'll be doing. So the idea is to increase our uh, mm -hmm. distribution footprint. We're using the distribution footprint to build factories. So we opened our first factory in Ghana, in, in Africa, I should say. Uh, and it was in Ghana last year mm -hmm. where we import uh, bulk edible oil. So we bring, say, let's say sunflower oil from yeah. Ukraine and we package that locally. We produce uh, bottles and yeah. we package it and yeah. we, we distribute that through our, our, our own distribution channels. Yeah. So the idea is to build more of those factories uh, where, we, where what, what we're really doing is we're, we're taking advantage of a government incentivization program, um, which is where if you import, let's say, a bottle of sunflower oil, okay, a one liter bottle, you might pay, let's, these are round numbers because it varies by country, you may pay 50% in total import duties and, and, okay. and costs. If you import in bulk and package locally, you might pay 20%. Yeah, so, so that, that savings is what incentivizes an investor. Well, that suddenly you increase your bottom line, Of right? course. Of now, course. how, so mention the countries in Africa. There, there is a bad reputation. Every country in the world, we've talked about this before, there is a level of corruption, right? Whatever that looks like. Sometimes it's less obvious. It's not paying a tax properly. It's not declaring certain profits, but it's still corruption, right? Mm -hmm. White, uh, gray corruption, let's call it. In Africa, it's it's standard corruption in every facet of business, pretty much there. Not saying yours is, but well, how do you cope well, I mean, listen, with that, or do you allow it and factor yeah, it in? I mean, look, I, I, I've got to disagree with that. I mean, it's, okay, great. And, and what I, and what I want to say is that. Um, I mean, unfortunately, corruption is everywhere, okay? yeah. and, it's, and it's a cancer. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, it's at every level, uh, in, in certainly, and we've got to be careful when we say Africa, yeah, because- Sorry, that's really unfair. No, no, it's okay. How many countries are there? Yeah. 50, 35, we, we just got to be very careful, because let's put it this way. Um, Sierra Leone yeah. is a very different country than Ghana, right? which is a very different country than Mali, okay, which is yeah. very, very different than sure. Ethiopia and Kenya. They're all so different. So can I take that back? There's hundreds of languages. Myself. Yes, of course. There's elements of corruption. Is it hard to- manage it from a distance in new territories as you're expanding and have that trust with the people you work with. Of course it is. I mean, I think that the first thing to make it clear is that we make clear that we don't play that game. Okay. Okay. So because we have a mission and mm -hmm. part of that mission is investing into communities, improving the lives of people, bringing mm -hmm. better choice, our hope and belief is that we'll build enough momentum in those uh, communities where they will want to support our business. Okay. We won't have to play the corruption game and we're not going to do it. Gotcha. So I think that, that is really, really important. And because we're bringing in above average quality of food products, certainly higher than average, we're creative packaging, fun brands, and then building these, these factories where we're doing value add services, what do we need to be corrupt for? Correct. You know, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's the wrong way to approach the business. And it's actually, not sustainable. If you are working with the government and there are these incentives, they, they're doing it for a reason because mm. they want quality coming through. Look, let's, let's, let's think about it. I mean, the whole reason why a government, and, and this is, 
By the way, every I'm, I shouldn't say every country in West Africa that I know of yeah. has a similar policy. You import packaged, finished food product, you pay X in tax. You import that same product in a form of raw materials or yeah. in bulk, and you add value locally, you're going to get a reward. Okay. Lower uh, tariff, lower import tariff. Cool. Makes total sense. But also, you're employing more people, though, by doing yes. that. Yes. So it works. Oh, it's, it, it's a win-win. And, and for us, this is why we started with distribution. We start with distribution. Mm. We've got the, the, the path to sales. Mm. So now what we're doing is we're simply adding some value in the country locally before that distribution happens. It makes sense, right? Yeah. So, so for example, let's talk about Ghana. In Ghana, we, we, we sell these uh, in huge volume, these 25 liter uh, plastic cans of, of oil. It's the fastest moving SKU in edible oil. It's, it's you wouldn't believe- you use, another, you use another acronym there, SKU. Yeah, so, well, let's just say, let's say this. If we take a particular product, yeah. okay? This one is the fastest moving. So okay. within oil, Okay, within cooking oil, this is the fastest moving product size. Okay, okay. okay. so um, this is going, uh, you wouldn't believe the volume. So we import this. We import this product and distribute it. So why not import the oil in bulk, yeah. make the packaging yeah. locally, produce it, manufacture it, and then fill the, fill the packaging, put a label on it, and distribute it. Well, I'll tell you why a lot of people don't do that, because yeah. you've got to pivot, and you you might get it wrong, but this is the difference between you, you and someone guess, else, okay, right? No, hang on, you might get it wrong, but but if you're if you're already selling the product, yep. you've got the distribution. Yeah, yeah. So so when someone goes to start a new business, you've got to think about I've got to raise capital, mm. I've got to run a factory, I've got to hire people, I've got to sell the product. Mm. Marketing and sales has been eliminated. We don't have that problem because we're already selling it. Okay. So so where's the execution risk? Is that we don't build the factory correctly? We screw up on inventory management of raw materials. We, we make some kind of mistake, which certainly can be made, but you reduce the risk significantly. So, I, I mean, I hate, the, I, I hate the word synergies, but this is, you know, <coughs> we're taking advantage of a, of a synergy I guess that's it's probably a bit similar to like making Ford motor cars and having Ford forecourts as well, right? So you're kind of covering them both off. But I think well, um, well, well so, so automobile manufacturing companies, they, they open up manufacturing plants in yeah. various countries, yeah, yeah. right? So you know certain cars are made in multiple countries rather than exactly, shipping the car. This is exactly why. Which yeah. okay, so what's your revenues at the moment? I mean, you don't say too much. Where do you expect to be, let's say, five years? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think uh, yeah, we, you know, we're obviously a private company, so I'll, I'll talk about I'll talk about projections. Yeah. I mean, in, in five years, we really should be. We should be close to a billion in revenues. A billion, I mean, that's remarkable, Craig. I mean, we got to get a lot of right to get there, but we have a plan to do it. Yeah, we're going to continue opening up these distribution, yeah. uh, this distribution footprint, and within that footprint, we're going to open up packaging plants. And by the way, packaging of oil will move on to packaging of milk powder. It'll include processing. So right now, we've got a great and growing mayonnaise business. We export mayonnaise I mean, from Ukraine. It's a super high quality product. And we send it into multiple West African des destinations. Mm. We're now sending it to East Africa and we're sending it to the Middle East. And you know what? Mm. The quality is fantastic. But if we're in the oil business and we're importing bulk sunflower oil yeah. into some of these countries, why wouldn't we produce mayonnaise locally when sunflower oil is it's the major raw material component in mayonnaise so processing? who came up with that idea? Well, uh, the specific idea, I mean, look, I did, but I'm not reinventing the wheel. Ah, ah, I'm, not, I'm not reinventing no, the I'm wheel. Sorry, no, I'm sorry. 
I'm not reinventing the wheel. This, no. is, this, is, not, this is not, this is basic stuff. Yeah, we're, we're in the mayonnaise business. Yeah. We're in the sunflower oil business. We're packaging sunflower oil. So why not add a few different ingredients, put in a line and produce the same quality mayonnaise isn't locally? It, isn't it lovely, right? That a man who's got an Irish father, an English mother, is making mayonnaise in Africa. I mean, that is just brilliant, isn't it? So, um, I mean, and, and what I love more than anything, you are going to be the billion dollar man. Yeah. Listen, I think it's not... That's pretty cool, way, isn't it? Let, let's be clear. So, I've, I've had for a long time a fantastic business partner. I've got a number of newer business partners. There are a group of us doing this together. Sure. Okay? I'm the CEO, I run the business, but I rely. We've got a, a head of Ukraine. Mm. We've got uh, a head of Malaysia, you know, partners in the business. We've got heads in Africa. Mm. We've got, uh, you know, heads of finance. We've got, we've got people that, are, that have a vested interest in this business like I do. Mm. And without it, forget it. Yeah. Not going to scale. Not, not to scale. Okay, so look, QP, it's, it's a runaway success and it's down to your hard work and tenacity. It's, so it's not a runaway success yet. Well, I'm just going to say that. It's getting else. there. Well, the man makes mayonnaise. I mean, Christ, if you can make your own mayo, <laughs> you're laughing, right? Because I love a chicken mayo sandwich. Do you do chickens? Because that'd be amazing as well. Do you know what? We, we actually, we have... Uh, we've of course taken chicken. Yeah, we've, uh, we've re- recently um, purchased some chicken from the US. We, we, we imported into I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? No, that's no, true. It was, uh, it didn't go well. Okay, right. it was actually, uh, we made a mistake. And we're going to learn from that mistake, and we're going to do it better next time. There you go. Learning. Okay, so look. Um, so we talked about advice. Um, we talked about risk. Um, I really would like to talk about one of your successes. And I guess, looking back at the last 25 years of your working life, is that right? Yeah. Would you say the opportunity when you worked in iron ore has been the most financially rewarding? It was the biggest financial success okay. we've had, yeah. So, I have been through the years, and there's lots of people who work for themselves, you get sent documents about buying gold, about buying iron ore, getting involved <laughs> in oil. You know, mm. do you know sort of those, I've got someone you can make a dollar a barrel and there's oh a billion, God. million doesn't barrels. Exist. Yeah. Right, it doesn't exist. And so some people would say, iron ore and those things don't exist. Yeah. But you, with no experience in iron ore, correct? True. Managed to sell iron ore to the Chinese on a huge scale. Is that correct? That is true. Okay. It's all true, yeah. Tell us about how that happened. What happened? Because this set you yeah. on your path to proper wealth, correct? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'd obviously had some success in the past, but in the past, but I had some failures too. And, and I think this, this came out of, uh, of a failure, actually. Really? Yeah, I had, um, it was one of my kind of, I'd say it was my first big entrepreneurial venture when I left JP Morgan. And, um, you know, it, it, it took three years, but it failed. And um, what was that? It was a uh, myself and, and and my business partner at the time. We started a. Um, it was an asset management business. It was a fund of hedge funds. We'd come out of the city, both yep. of us, and uh, this is where I made you know made a mistake. I, because I didn't like working in the city. I didn't actually like my job, mm. but that was my immediate skill set. And instead of thinking of doing something different and, and reinventing myself, I kind of did the same without thing. salary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it and it, it, it was it was very successful the first two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it blew up. It, w- it went horribly wrong. And I, and I would say, you know, that venture, I learned more from that about business and about myself than anything because it was my biggest failure. And actually what it did... Is did, it, it, did it get to the point where it bankrupted you? Well... Did it um, strip your assets? <laughs> you know, I certainly ran out of money. Let's put it that way. And imagine you, you leave the city, you've been with, you know, big banks making lots of money. You've you got know, your lifestyle. You've got, you got, you got everything. And, you know, you've, you've put everything into your business and... 
you lose the business, you don't lose everything, but, but, but then what you've got left, you're living on, right? You got no income. So this is the whole thing about entrepreneurship. Yeah. No income, you're still spending money, you still gotta live, and still you're gonna drain down those resources. And that yeah. pressure turns up, turns up, turns up. Now, it's interesting because I do think that this is when people really are tested. When, when, when you know, things get bad uh, and things get tough, you're tested. And, and, and the iron ore business came out of that. And I, I, to be honest, I met, you know, I met an entrepreneur yeah. and, um, who was you know, quite a colorful character, to say the least, and was developing um, uh, an iron ore asset in Africa. I met him uh, through some friends and I was looking for something to do. And um, you know, we hit it off. Was this and, in Miami? No, no, this was here in London, actually. Okay. I'd, come, I'd come back to London. I'd been in, I'd been in the US, actually, right. uh, with, with this venture. Yeah. And uh, it's funny, I, I always seem to come back to London. Uh, it's always, this is why I know London's home, because okay. this is where I always come home to. I came back to London after a failure, really yeah. to start again. And you can imagine, I was thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna go back to the city. I mean, well, also your ego's crushed at this point, right? Crushed. I mean, and and back, back then, my life was more ego-driven, so yeah, I know was crushed. <laughs> I know we've got ego for a reason to both, you know, uh, excel and understand failure. But many people don't quite understand is when you put everything on the line, it's hard. Well, it? man, imagine you, you leave JP Morgan, you go off to the US, you're all excited, you got this venture, you got your business partner, you come back three years later with your tail between your legs looking for a job, right? Looking for something to do. And of course, I, I couldn't go back to the city. Well, you can't, because once you stop working yourself, you, well, you are. can't. I mean, imagine this, and not, not to mention that, but the city was changing so much. Okay. And, so what you knew and of course, and of course, right? I didn't want to go and work for someone else. Yeah. I wanted to do my own thing, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I meddled around, looked at a few projects, uh, it worked on one or two things here and there. As an entrepreneur would try, none, none of them working, and I met this met this entrepreneur, and um, well, I convinced him to to let me go off to China uh, with some samples of iron ore uh, from 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 the mine he was developing, which was in Sierra Leone. Was he? Which, you know, as, oh, she was a man. You said he, right? Yeah. So, with, was he the owner? He, he, he was, yeah. He was the majority owner, yeah. And he allowed you to sell on his behalf, essentially. Well, the mine was not in production. Okay. okay. And he was having, I think, I think some of the large commodity traders, uh, I won't name any of them, but I think some I of the large commodity the traders were, were, were giving him guidance he didn't like. Okay. They were telling him your iron ore is worth X, and he believed it was worth X plus X right. percent, plus Y percent. Uh, so when I spoke to him, I think he was looking for somebody who was hungry, was not going to listen to the mainstream, and would go out there and try. And of course, I was looking for something to do, and I wanted a, I wanted something that would be rewarding and profitable. And I was and I'm and I was up for an adventure. So I went to Sierra Leone with him. Yeah. I visited the mine. Yeah. I saw the operation, yeah. and I convinced him and and by mistake probably myself that I could sell this iron ore. And was it, there was no production going on at all. No, there was no production. How do you know there's iron ore there? Well, I went to visit the mine. They were building a mine. So they, they were. They had is it samples. a mine like we think? They they've got tracks and carts going in and out. Yeah, it was, I mean, yeah, for sure. It looks like a mine would look like if you Googled it. And yeah, you've got there. So where is it? Sorry, Sierra Leone. This is why, no surprise today, I'm in Sierra Leone with Was that your first visit to the sub-Sahara region of no, Africa? No, it wasn't, but, but it was my first uh, visit to a real business there. Okay. Yeah. And then you, you found this iron ore, you convinced him that you could find a buyer for it? Well, yeah, I convinced him I could find a buyer. And and did you have a buyer? Well, well, no, I didn't, but, but, but I didn't tell him I had a buyer. I, I convinced him I could find a buyer. Okay. And so, so I didn't misrepresent myself. I just said, I will work 24 hours a day mm -hmm. and I will find a buyer. I will report directly to you and I will go out there and I will make this happen. What did he have to lose? So, I mean, by the way, he kind of said to me, okay, do this on the, on the down low. Like, let's, let's not, we're not gonna advertise this, you know, but get out there. He gave me the material I needed. I asked a lot of questions. I learned a lot. I mean, you know, I asked 
endless questions. By the way, when I got to China, <laughs> I realized I didn't know anything. <laughs> and so you I didn't go cold to China. Well, what, what happens, I went to Hong Kong. Okay. okay? And you I, mean one person? I, I, yeah, I began to assemble a team. Now, you know, the truth is I got one person to start with me, okay, who was, was fluent in, in English, in Mandarin, mm-hmm. in Cantonese, spoke certain Chinese dialects, a great young guy. Okay, and we went off to China together. He, he knew a lot less than I did about iron ore. I, I knew nothing. But we went off there, we went off with some, uh, some samples, five kg bags of iron ore, and I carried them in my suitcase. I remember I carried five of these samples. I mean, this is astonishing, isn't it? It was hilarious. I had 25 kg of iron ore in my suitcase. We went off to China. And you know, look, he was cold calling Chinese steel mills, and I was preparing a PowerPoint presentation on the mine, and we started. And, and, and you know, listen, Giles, it was a long journey. I will tell you, in nine months, we visited 72 steel mills throughout China. Oh my gosh. Got rid of the first five. You self-funded at this point? Yeah, yeah. It was was fumes of what I had left from my failure. And it was tough. And that was- And and the thing is, you don't know if it's gonna succeed, right? You just have to believe. Well, yeah, and there were a lot of times, you, you know, you think it may not, but uh, but then you get glimmers of hope, and those keep you going. Yeah, and uh, and I, I love a bit of hope. Me too. Yeah. I, it certainly inspires. Yeah. I think my relationship with hope has changed dramatically okay. because it's it's it used to be um, I relied on it a lot more. Now it's much more analytically based hope. Okay, okay? okay. but but it certainly hard work has to be in there. Yeah. Okay. So we visited these steel mills, and throughout that process, we found our first fire. And, you know, and that's where the problems began, <laughs> you, know, you know, because uh, it's great to have a buyer. But of course, I didn't have a contract. I didn't have a company. You know, I didn't have any of these things that, that one needs. So we quickly put that together, actually. And, and what happened was, um, and this was, quite, this was quite stressful, I had to sign the contract with the buyer and, 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 and our new company that my business partner, you know, Aiden and I had put together. I had to sign that, that contract, but we hadn't actually signed the contract for the supply yet. Oh so a lot of that was on trust, okay? Yeah. And, 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 and actually... And were you financially going to be exposed and legally could there be well, repercussions? Well, and reputation-wise, I mean, okay. you've, got, you've got to deliver when you yeah. sign a contract. You've got to deliver. And of course, I believe we would deliver, 100%. I mean, I look back now and I realize I probably didn't fully understand that risk. But Would you do it again now? Well, in the exact same way, no way. Too stressful. No. Yeah. I do it differently. I would do it differently. It'd be, it'd be far more research-driven, far more analytical. Okay. And, and by the way, and probably far more cautious, and it maybe would be less of a success, and maybe it wouldn't have worked. So you, you got this one signed. At your peak, how much iron ore were you sending over there? I mean, look, I think we, we, we contracted, I'm going to say, uh, in total around 8 million tons. Wow. Something like that. Is that that's an astonishingly large amount? It's a or lot. Is that quite? No, no, it's a lot. Come on. I mean, look at okay. the biggest vessels. What's I mean, the total maybe, value on eight million tons? It's it's uh, well, of course, it depends on the price of iron ore at the time. But let's just say, you know, it's 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 hundreds and hundreds of millions. I mean, it's Crikey. you know, depending on the iron ore. And price. you'll get a slice of every single ton. Well, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. uh, of course, and it was because it's mine. It was at the time. It was the biggest <laughs> iron ore mine being developed in the region. In, I mean, in, I just want to shake your hand. That's amazing. Well, no, but listen. I mean, come on. We, we there were huge battles along the way, yeah. And and there were there were big uh, big issues within within the, the the supplier because who was this new group of, you know, hung, young hungry hungry entrepreneurs right, trying to stop it? Oh, it was a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. I mean, the the very first vessel that I remember that we we got off from 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 Sierra Leone on the way to China, that that almost put us under, because the what happened is that the the 
I won't name the bank, but the bank that had committed to fund the first transaction, which gave us the strength to continue and the belief we could do this. Yeah. Because remember what happens, you get, you, well, let me explain what happens. You get a letter of credit from the customer. Yeah. Okay. And that letter of credit, which is being approved that they've actually got the funds, correct? Yes, correct. And so they're issuing a letter of credit. From and it says you locked away that money. Well, it, it does, it guarantees payment against certain presentation okay. of documents. And those documents are export documents, certificate of quality, all sorts of stuff. So you get this letter of credit into your bank from a customer, you load the vessel, sail it off. But, but at some point, you know, you've got to pay for that iron ore, okay, before you're paid. And, and so, the, so you have to cash flow. Well, well the, the, the role of the bank, of course, so against that letter of credit, which is security okay. payment, the bank's supposed to finance that transaction. Yeah. And the bank, which will remain nameless, had promised to do that. Yeah. They'd given a verbal confirmation they would do it. Yeah. And you know, from where I grew up and what I believed, if and a bank, bank tells you they're going to do it, they're going to do it. And guess what? <laughs> no. They didn't do it. And, they, and when, they, when they announced they weren't going to do it, it was too late. So we'd already, you know, we were moving forward. And this was, this was probably, it was definitely one of the scariest. Well, how much money was that? Do you remember? Yeah, I think at the time it was, uh, it was probably, I'm going to say 10 or 12 million. 10 or 12 million dollars. And you had to then somehow find someone to plug that gap. We did. I mean, we, that's what, sorry, how we didn't, <laughs> we had to. And, and, and we, uh, my business partner and I, we, you know, we, we kind of had lost our minds at that point. I remember we went and we, of course, I booked airline tickets because that's still something I do. Um, we, we booked airline tickets and we just, we flew around the world to meet anybody we knew with money to ask them to finance this thing. And how, what did you do? How did it end up? Well, it didn't go well because, you know, when you need money, investors never <coughs> want to put it in. Okay. Isn't, isn't it hilarious? Yeah. It's the worst thing. When they you need money, you they're never there. Yeah. When you don't need money, they're always there. Yeah. And, and so it's, uh, it's, it's a ride. So, so of course, people could see us coming from a mile away and didn't want to do anything, even though we had this, you know, this letter of credit from a world-class bank. It was a secure transaction. Dunk, right? We were prepared to so give them So who did give you the money the in the end? How did you do it? Well, this was quite something. I mean, we, we thought we were failing, actually, at this point. We thought the business was finished. And I, and I remember, because as a last-ditch effort, I got on a plane to China, and I went to see the customer. Okay, yeah. and, and, I, and I went and I told the customer the truth. We got a problem. Our banks let us down. I cannot deliver you the iron. That must have been so awkward. It was horrible. So you got a 12-hour flight from the UK, 13-hour so flight, horrible. and you're going, is this going to work? And you still don't know. And I said, oh I said I, and I asked them for their help. And I think, you know, sometimes you've got to go and ask a customer for their help. <laughs> you know, and this was one of those times. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's amazing. But the, the owner of the mill, I'll never forget him. He was a real character. He listened. Of course, it was translated. He pondered, he thought, and, and there was a moment, and I remember, we, we, of course, we had some meals together. Of course, we drank together all the, the normal stuff. Unfortunately, I think we had to drink some baiju. <laughs> yeah, um, we, we both but, talk, I love baiju. But look, you know, he was an entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think the fact that I went and I told him the truth and he understood, and I looked him in the eye, anyway, he decided to back us. Wow. And I remember because it was, it was, it was a day that just everything changed. He called his banker in Hong Kong and he basically said, you are going to fund this LC. And at that point, I think China had begun a major industrial growth, you know, uh, uh, period of time and it was extraordinary and things were happening and, yeah. and he had obviously the influence to do that. And, yeah. and that, that bank in, in Hong Kong um, backed us on the transaction. We loaded that first vessel and we never looked back. And then we were loading, you know, 180,000 ton vessels and those were, those were some great times. Oh, Craig, I love that. Listen, I won't take up too much of your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a um, I think if anyone's listening to that, you've just had 
a snippet into what it's like to be an, a very successful entrepreneur and a fantastic guy. Thanks, Thanks Craig. Um, You've been listening to Bull by the Horns. I'm Giles Vickers-Jones with Spots by Shy Aviation. See you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>